The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We start with stocks on a real hot streak, doing something for the first time since 2017. But there's still one more big test for the markets before Santa visits Wall Street. A big part of this year's record run, of course, big tech and the Magnificent Seven. We're going to lay out the historic rally and if it can stretch into the new year, maybe even beyond. Investor fatigue, not the only possible headwind to more gains before year's end. A number of global hotspots also creeping up on traders' radars. The latest developments and the risk to your portfolio in just a moment. Plus, less than a month ago before the Iowa caucuses. The race for the White House just getting started. And then later in the show, Alex Rodriguez reportedly scoring big on Wall Street. It's Monday, December 18, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. I hope you had a great weekend. Let's get you ready to start this trading week. As always, we kick off the hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. After a bit of a mixed session on Friday, they saw the Dow close at another record high and the S&P lock in its longest weekly win streak since 2017, up seven weeks in a row. Take a look right now. We are seeing green across the board. It looks like the Dow would open up more than 50 points higher. The S&P and the Nasdaq both firmly in the green, fractionally higher, but still firmly in the green. We're also checking the bond market as the 10-year yield continues to hover below 4%. Take a look right now. 3.89% yield on the benchmark 10-year, down about 30 basis points from where it opened on Monday last week. We're also looking at the oil market right now, pretty close to 71 bucks a barrel right now. After finishing last week higher and stopping an eight-week slide, right now, again, as I said, right around 70, under a bit of pressure right now, down three-quarters of a percent. Brent crude at 76.07, down just over a half a percent. Our Bob gas, that's kind of a proxy for gas. This is the whole price. You can see it's down almost one and a half percent. All right, that's your morning money setup. Let's now see how Europe is shaping up. As this trading day gets underway, our Jamana Bersetti is live in our London newsroom with much more. Jamana, good morning. Morning, Frank. Well, after five straight weeks of gains for the stock 600 today, the open is looking somewhat mixed. We're leaning towards the red slightly so for the stock 600. Uh, Kakaron DAX coming off their all-time record highs towards the end of last week today, slipping somewhat in trading. We are seeing an underperformance in construction and real estate sectors uh, at the start of trade. FTSE 100 over here in the UK up four-tenths of a percent. Uh, we are keeping a close eye on commodities today. We are seeing a bit of a balance given the geopolitical events that are happening around the red Sea. So that is ticked higher for some of the stocks that are exposed to those events. Zetradax in Germany down three tenths of a percent. So we are seeing chemicals do quite well right at the top of the DAX index. At the bottom, we've got autos and then the Kekkerhout in France down four tenths seeing some luxury declines this morning. But in terms of chemicals, let me just bring you the latest news that we're watching out of Dutch fertilizer company, OCI, that is leading European stocks this morning after agreeing to sell subsidiary IOF fertilizer to Coke Industries in a deal worth 3.6 
billion euros. Uh, so that stock is up 14% and is one of the reasons why we are seeing a bounce in chemicals this morning. And then Vodafone also in focus, almost up 7% in trading today. Uh, this after Iliad made an offer to merge the two companies' Italian businesses in a move which would net Vodafone a payment of 6.5 billion euros. So not just good for Vodafone, but also telcos in general have reacted quite positively to the news this morning. Frank. All right, Germana, thank you very much. We're going to be touching on that situation in the Red Sea just a bit later in the show. Our Germana Bersetschi live in our London newsroom. The markets will try to keep up their positive momentum as we head into the final stretch of the year. The major averages are coming off seven straight weeks of gains, with the bulk of that coming after the Fed decision on Wednesday. But there's still one more big test before Santa visits the corner of Wall and Broad. That's November PCE. That's out on Friday. Investors are seeking further confirmation inflation is easing after CPI and PPI. They both show the Fed's efforts to rein in prices are taking hold. Forecasts expect the core PCE, which strips out food and energy, will rise by a tenth of a percent for the month and 3.2 percent on an annual basis down from 3.5 percent in October. Let's bring in Ross Mayfield, investment strategy analyst at Baird Ross. Good morning. Great to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right, so give us a sense, Ross. Obviously, we're seeing a big rally in the market. It's a bull market pretty much across the board in recent days. How important is PCE to that rally continuing and us possibly having a Santa Claus rally that would start a week after tomorrow? I think it's really important. I mean, this whole rally is predicated on the Fed easing next year more than the market had expected and the soft landing basically being on, right? You've had this risk on rally and everything rally, and it's predicated on a soft landing. So you basically need every data point to confirm that. Otherwise, I think the risk skews to the downside. So I, d I don't see any big you know, downside risk from the PCE number, but it's not just PCE. It's every economic data point in January and February have to continue to confirm that this soft landing is on. And the Fed has to come out and continue to confirm what the market you know, took away from their Wednesday meeting, which is they're going to ease next year more than expected and possibly earlier than expected because inflation has come down so rapidly. I want to talk to you about bond yields right now. We've been talking about their pretty steady decline, especially after the Fed decision. Um, before, bonds were given a lot of competition to equities. Now it doesn't seem like that's as much of a case. A lot of people saying the term risk on, which means people are more willing to invest in riskier assets. Are there any areas that are, quote unquote, riskier that you see benefiting the most? Yeah, look, I think if the soft landing is the base case, it's the economically sensitive areas, the more cyclical stocks, the more value tilted stocks that have been a little beaten up in 2023. Um, that could take the baton of leadership in 2024. I think those would be more classically risky. They're a little more volatile with the business cycle. Um, but if we're seeing this uptick in business activity, if we're seeing the Fed easing rates and the soft landing kind of being on, then I think those areas would be the ones to take the baton in 2024. You're looking at things like financials, um, industrials, potentially things like materials and energy, again, more classically sensitive to the economy. But if the economy is going to rally or continue the rally in 2024, then we'd expect those stocks outperform. All right, let's talk about uh, the rally continuing. So we're going to talk about the Magnificent Seven later in the show. I want to talk to you about the S&P 493. I know you're looking at the S&P equal weighted index. That continues to outperform. What does that signal to you as someone who advises investors and advises clients? Yeah, look, we never bought in fully to the idea that a, a narrow market rally was some harbinger of doom or risk this year. You know, it's it's just kind of the nature of the beast and the, the cap-weighted S&P 500. But all things equal, we would like to see a broader, more participation in the rally 
And so the other 493 or the equal weight S&P, the representation of that average stock starting to rally, starting to outperform in November, it is really confirmation that this, this cyclical rally has some legs to it, right? It's broadening out to beaten down sectors, um, to those, those value and cyclically, cyclical sectors. And so to get that participation as a really you know good sign heading into a new year, that broadening of a rally is, is healthier, all things considered. So you're talking about a rotation in the cyclicals. Is there one area of cyclicals in particular that you think benefits? Is it materials? Is it industrials? I mean, what benefits in 2024 after this huge tech rally in 2023? I think all things equal, I, I like industrials the best of that group. Um, they have the the everything we've just been talking about, right? A potential for a cyclical rally. They're a diverse sector. They also have some structural tailwinds in the form of big fiscal spending, whether it's the infrastructure bill, um, or the IRA. So there's, uh, and then there's aerospace and defense, of course, as part of that sector, which has some tailwinds as well. So there's a lot to like in industrials. They've been um, pretty firm this year. They haven't really been one of the beaten up sectors. They haven't, you know, been up there with AI, but they've, they've held in. I think industrials have the potential to actually outperform next year and, and provide some other reasons for optimism outside of just your hope for a, a cyclical rally um, with the soft landing. Yeah, some of the geopolitical tensions giving a boost to aerospace and defense. We'll actually be talking about that later in the week. Ross Mayfield, always great to see you. Thank you for your time and for your insight. Thank you. All right, time now for a check with some of this morning's top corporate stories, and look who it is. Pippa Stevens on a Monday morning. Good morning on a Pippa. Monday. Good morning, Frankie. We'll start here with Illumina, which says it will divest itself from cancer blood test maker Grail after a U.S. court found the deal to be anti-competitive. San Diego-based Illumina says it will look to a third-party sale or capital market deal to shed its stake in Grail by the middle of next year. Illumina first agreed to its $1.7.1 billion deal for Grail back in 2020, saying it would pave the way for a new frontier in diagnostic medicine. In Washington, the Senate could reach a potential deal on additional funding for Ukraine and Israel, along with stronger U.S. border protections. Speaking on CNN's State of the Union yesterday, West Virginia's Joe Manchin says a deal could happen as soon as this week. I think that our negotiators right now, from our Republican and Democrat negotiators who are really diligent, doing a great job, and then basically with the White House involved, committed to getting this uh, border under control. That's what I'm really uh, very hopeful for, and I think that we're going to see something next week, and we'll stay there until we get it done. His comments come after negotiators in Congress and the White House failed to reach a framework yesterday and are still set to leave for holiday recess at the end of this week. And a SPAC set up by former New York Yankees shortstop Alex Rodriguez is reportedly planning to merge with satellite communications provider Link Global. According to Bloomberg, the blank check company known as Slam Corp signed a letter of intent to merge with Link which is currently private and lists on the Nasdaq Stock Exchange. The report adds the combined company is expected to be valued at no less than $800 million. Frank, we don't hear about SPACs that often anymore. Yeah, I can't remember last time we said SPAC, blank check company. <laughs> it might have even been a year. Ever since AI came, we haven't heard anything about that, mm -hmm. or at least talked about it much. Alex Rodriguez continued to broaden out his business ventures as well. Exactly. Pippa, we'll see you later in the show talking energy in just a bit. Thank you. All right, coming up, we have a lot more here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors need to know today. But first, new developments in Ukraine, Israel, and the Red Sea, and the risks they pose to portfolios this month and in the year ahead. Plus, we are tracking the Magnificent Seven rally and the tech investing playbook for the new year. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. 
What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. You might not think that a few simple words could make you crave McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. But if you listen closely to the sound of me saying, McGriddles, McMuffin, you might be wrong. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Now to a developing story. We're tracking hot spots around the world that have the potential to extend into the new year and also expand in terms of scope and international influence from Wall Street to Capitol Hill. We're going to begin with Russia and Ukraine, each reporting dozens of attempted and successful drone strikes in the past days. The strike's coming only hours after the EU failed to pass a fresh $54 billion aid package for Ukraine, and U.S. aid talks remain stalled. Ukraine's Air Force said Saturday that its air defense had shot down 30 out of 31 drones launched overnight against 11 regions of that country. The Russian Defense Ministry said at least 35 Ukrainian drones were shot down over the weekend across three regions in southwest Russia. This is Israel's government faces fresh calls for a ceasefire or a strategy shift in Gaza from some of its closest allies. Those calls after a series of strikes over the weekend including one exchange that saw the IDF accidentally kill three Israeli hostages. This week, two top U.S. military leaders, including Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, will travel to Tel Aviv to speak with their counterparts. The campaign in Israel also spilling out into the Red Sea. Houthi rebels in Yemen, they're continuing their attacks against container ships in the area with the U.S. military engaging almost daily with enemy drones. The Houthis pledging to not relent until Israel's war with Hamas is over. The tensions are impacting shipping lanes that are seen as a fragile linchpin to the global economy and account for roughly 30 percent of global shipping traffic. Some of the world's largest shippers, including MSC and Maersk, have paused sending ships through that region in response. Joining me now to tie all of this together and gauge the risk for investors is Tina Fordham, Fordham Global Foresight founder and former chief uh, city global chief political analyst. Tina, good morning. It is great to have you here. Morning, Frank. How are you? So, Tina, if you don't mind, let's begin with the last one, the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. Give us a sense. How big of a risk do you see this as investors, for investors, excuse me, uh, how big of a risk to the global supply chain? And how should we view the visit by the defense secretary? These attacks are brazen. I mean, there are two U.S. carriers stationed in the Mediterranean, and that does not appear to be deterring the Iran-backed Houthi rebels who who claim that they are uh, attacking internationally flagged vessels that are tied to Israel. Um, That is not clear. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, I think we can expect to hear some strong words from him. Um, But for investors, what are the implications? This war is not shaping up to be like the 2006-2007 playbook in previous conflicts in the Middle East, which I warned of pretty assiduously right from the start. Um, There are more moving pieces. The stakes are higher. The fact is, if you are uh, an actor like um, the Houthi rebels, now is an excellent time to press your case uh, and to see if the U.S. will put its you know, money where its mouth is or its firepower 
where its carriers are. So I think this is significant provocation. All right, so you're saying a significant provocation. One thing I do want to ask you about the Houthi rebels, uh, some people see them as a proxy for Iran. They're certainly closely aligned with Iran. Do you believe their actions are directly linked to Iran, or are they taking actions on their own simply with Iranian support? This is the kind of thing that is very hard to parse. Um, and I almost think it's of limited, you know, kind of utility to, to try to do so. What we see are efforts to undermine the U.S.-led global order, uh, lots of people, of course, lots of investors think that that would be a good thing. The U.S. is overextended. Others should do more, et cetera. Be that as it may, we have an active conflict and uh, and rogue actors which are testing U.S. resolve. At some point, the U.S. may may and I think is more likely to respond now than during past provocations. We're talking about, you know, I think 16,000 drone attacks. This by itself will not be enough. Uh, to prompt U.S. action. But if there are troop fatalities um, or it goes over a line, I mean, this is really part of what the military call below threshold, sub threshold actions. Iran can invoke okay. plausible deniability when it comes to Houthi rebels. You know, um, okay. it doesn't control them. Uh, and that gives it a lot of cover while okay. still being able to test us. So plausible deniability there. I want to touch on one more thing. Uh, the war in Ukraine, we saw the EU fail to pass a $54 billion aid package. Uh, aid packages stalling here in the U.S. How should investors view that? This, this conflict, it just continues to go on and on. I think many people thought it would have had some type of conclusion by now. Well, anybody who thought that was wrong, and none of my clients would have thought that because wars last a long time, unless we're talking about the Falklands or Grenada, which are huge exceptions in the arc of military history. Um, Putin will not go to the negotiating table as long as he thinks he might have a new, a new U.S. president in the White House in 11 months' time. There's no incentive to do so. A war of attrition, a stalemate, um, those are good outcomes for Putin. And uh, you can see the you know, Russian television news presenters literally thanking congressional Republicans for doing their work for them, which I'm not sure is what they intended as they press for, for immigration reform. The fact is we are at an inflection point. Um, you know, we can't use naughty words on television, but there is a blank around and find out. We're about to find <laughs> out if we don't um, get our act together. Now, Chuck Schumer has uh, insisted that the Senate stay in a while longer. I think if, if Congress okay. is able to pass Ukraine aid, that could help um, stave off what is otherwise okay. looking like a tough period for Zelensky and Ukraine. All right, Tina Fordham, a former Fordham Global Foresight. Uh, I wasn't expecting to hear that from you saying when it comes to Ukraine, blank around and find out. That was not what I was expecting, Tina, but uh, perhaps some wise words. Thank you very much. All right, ahead on here, Worldwide Exchange. It's been more than a year since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law, but investors and executives in one area of the energy sector, they're still waiting on one key item. We have the full details when we return right here on Worldwide Exchange. Stay with us. Friday. Friday. It's almost like whoever named Friday knew it should be celebrated with free fries. Free Fries Friday at McDonald's. Get a free medium fries with any purchase of a dollar or more on the McDonald's app. Bada -ba -ba -ba. Offer valid through 930 to participate in McDonald's. Excludes tax. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Francis Rivera with your NBC News headlines. We begin with a powerful storm system hitting the East Coast. This system is continuing its charge toward New England after bringing strong winds, heavy rain and flooding across the eastern seaboard. In New Jersey, thousands are waking up without power, while parts of the Carolinas on Sunday were inundated with up to 11 inches of rain. Breaking late last night, a scary scene in Delaware where a car crashed into President Biden's motorcade. The president was promptly whisked by Secret Service into an armored car and is safe. The accident is under investigation, but the Secret Service says they do not suspect foul play. And on Sunday Night Football, the Ravens took their talents to Duvall. The purple and black looked unstoppable on the road against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Quarterback Lamar Jackson and the offense rushed for over 250 yards while the defense took advantage of multiple miscues by the Jags. Baltimore secures their 11th win of the year and becomes the first team in the AFC to punch their ticket to the playoffs. Okay, Frank, for a Monday morning, you are up to date with your news headlines. You know, that was a very good game, but you're really burying the lead, Francis. The Cowboys lost. That's the important thing when it comes to all this. They did. <laughs> My son, who's a huge Bills fan, he was so happy about that win as well. So, you know. Well, as I always tell you, I'm an Eagles fan. So yesterday I was part of the Bills Mafia. Francis, there you go. always great to see you. Thank sure thing. You. All right, moving on to the energy sector. It's been more than a year since the Inflation Reduction Act became the law, but the Treasury Department still has not offered a lot of clarity around lucrative tax credits for one portion of the energy sector. Pippa Stevens is here with much more and the companies that stand to win and also the companies that stand to lose, Pippa. Good That's morning. Right. Hey, Frank. Well, we are down to the wire here since the Treasury Department previously said that it would issue guidance on the hydrogen tax credits by the end of the year. It's been delayed because there are vastly different opinions on what projects should qualify for the top $3 per kilogram credit. And with tens of billions in credits on the line, the debate is fierce. Now it all comes down to the electricity used to make the hydrogen, with the debate focused around the three key things, whether the hydrogen is made with new renewable energy sources that are added to the grid rather than diverting existing clean energy. The second is whether these new renewable energy resources are in the same region as the hydrogen facility itself. And finally, whether the power production is accounted for on an hourly or annual basis. Environmental groups say, as well as some companies, including hydrogen producer Air Products, that they believe that the emission standards should be as strict as possible. On the flip side are fossil fuel companies and utilities, such as BP, Exxon, and Nextera, who believe overly strict standards from the get-go will stifle the nascent industry. So essentially, Frank, they're saying that if you make it too strict from the start, then there's no way this industry will take off. On the right. flip side, the environmentalists say it has to be as strict as possible from the beginning. Yeah, a lot of different concerns on both sides. So do we have a sense of what decision the Treasury Department will make and when they're going to take this action? So uh, reportedly, uh, based on leaked guidance from the Treasury Department, the reports say that they are siding in favor with the environmentalists and really being strict on all three of those pillars. However, the Treasury Department declined to comment. But the reason why this has taken so long is because what the, the guidance they give and the law that they set is really going to dictate whether or not hydrogen takes off. This industry has been around for more than two decades at this right. point. Plug power hit an all-time high back in 2000. And so what Treasury does is going to set the bar for whether it's an industry. And we're now with, you know, two weeks until the end of the year, a lot still here on the line. All right, a lot of developments to watch into 2024. Pippa Stevens, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Thank you. All right, coming up, a $6 trillion reason the 2023 rally has way more room to run in 2024. We will be right back here on Worldwide Exchange. Stay with us. 
It is right around 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and there's a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Stocks coming off their seventh straight week of gains as investors hunt for a holiday cheer heading into Christmas. Futures, they're pointing to a higher open. 2023 is going down as the year that tech bounced back and it left the rest of the markets behind. But can the Magnificent Seven and company, can they keep up the momentum? Or will the new year present some fresh hurdles? And we are less than a month away from the first presidential primary contest of the 2024 race. We lay out the state of that race and who Wall Street is putting its money behind. It's Monday, December the 18th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start the day. As always, we're going to kick things off with a check of U.S. stock futures after a bit of a mixed session on Friday that saw the Dow close at another record and the S&P lock in its longest weekly win streak since 2017, up seven weeks in a row. Taking a look right now, green across the board. We are seeing the Dow hit its highest level of the morning, looking like it would open up about 75 points higher. The S&P up just around a quarter of a percent higher right now. So ahead of the open, here's where we stand from record highs. Of course, the Dow just hit another one on Friday. The S&P just over 2% away from the record. The Nasdaq more than 8% off. And the Russell 2000 just about 19% away from its all-time high. But if investors are wondering whether we can close the gap on any of these, take a look at this stat from the Investment Company Institute. It says, as of December 6th, total money market fund assets, or cash on the sidelines, it hit a record of $5.9 trillion dollars. And if the Fed's forecast of lower rates in the year ahead, if that holds true, expect a lot of that cash to move back into the markets. With that in mind, we are checking the bond market as the 10-year yield continues to hover just below 4%, right now at 3.89. This is about 30 basis points lower than we opened up just a week ago last Monday. All right, time now. That was your morning money setup. Time now to look at other parts of the market as investors gear up for the last two trading weeks of the year. A big part of the market narrative is just really continues to be mega cap tech. The magnificent seven stocks surging 75% this year as optimism over lower rates. And of course, artificial intelligence continues to fuel that trade. The magnificent seven now represents around 30% of the S&P 500's market value. And according to Goldman Sachs, that is nearing the highest ever share of the index for any seven stocks. The question for 2024, can the tech rally continue? Our Steve Kovac has more. We don't have to tell you about the run for the Magnificent Seven. That's, of course, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla have all had this year. But can that continue, or will the AI hype fizzle out? Here are some major potential catalysts to expect in 2024. For Apple, investors are desperate for the company to return to sales growth after four straight quarters of declines. That could be boosted by renewed growth in its services segment. As for Microsoft, it's still all about AI, specifically its chatbot for businesses called Copilot, which went on sale in November. And all those other companies using OpenAI will be a boost for Microsoft's fast-growing Azure cloud business. For Alphabet, it's still playing catch-up to ChatGPT, but keep an eye on Gemini Ultra, its most powerful AI model. That'll launch next year. For NVIDIA, constraints on its sales to China will make it tough to keep growth accelerating into 2024, but not to mention more competition is coming online from AMD, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, all of which are making new AI chips. Of course, AI is moving rapidly, and who knows who will surprise us next year. Frank? All right, thanks a lot to our Steve Kovac. Let's dive deeper into the playbook for tech in 2024 and bring in Sarah Koontz, Clio Capital Managing Director. Sarah, it is always great to see you. Good morning. Good morning. 
Let's kind of pick off, pick up where Steve left off. Just talking about AI, I want to specifically talk to you about NVIDIA. Really kind of the story of 2023. Uh, jumped, rose, rallied, whatever the word you want to use, more than 230% year to date. Also, the SMH chip ETF, best year, I believe, since 2003. Do you see chips continue to have the, their run in 2024? NVIDIA had the year of a lifetime this year, and it is going to be hard to repeat that no matter what. But the bigger problem, I think, for them is going to be that people have to use those chips. It's amazing that they have the capacity, but the reality is that a lot of these AI companies and companies that are spinning up AI lines of business are just finding that there isn't a ton of demand yet, and we're seeing that across the board. And when there's not tons of demand, it means that over time that, that chip demand is a little bit weaker. We've seen that in names like Taiwan Semiconductor, and where you know they're saying, look, we're not getting the orders necessarily around the designs or the manufacture of these chips uh, that that we you know maybe would have. And so is NVIDIA going to have a bad year next year in a traditional sense? Absolutely not. Is it going to repeat this year? I highly doubt it. I think that would be pretty difficult. A 200% increase in another year, pretty tough to repeat. So I do want to ask you, if NVIDIA is not going to repeat this performance, as you know, you're logically saying that's pretty difficult, is there another stock in the Magnificent Seven or some other part of tech that's this year or 2024's NVIDIA? I think that is always really, really hard to predict. You know, that run was so fascinating in part because NVIDIA had been hiding in plain sight for a long time. I think you're seeing a little bit of love on names like Intel and IBM around some, some similarities, but but they're really not the same businesses. You know, I like Al Alphabet for next year. I think that uh, their AI business is just wildly undervalued. They don't have to go launch a standalone paid product. They have things like Gemini, which you know you were discussing earlier, where you can plug that in if you're using Google at work and it works really, really well. I think that they're going to really see incremental revenue come from putting AI into products that they already have, like advertising, like right. search, and that's going to be a game changer. So if you, if you have this much confidence in Alphabet's offering of Gemini, what do you think about Microsoft and its AI assistant that's integrated into Office and other parts of its portfolio? The, the difficulty there is not that the products are super differentiated. They're pretty similar. The bigger question is, it seems like Microsoft has indicated that they want to find ways to charge for it as a standalone product. And I do think that that's going to be a harder sell right now when it's a cool tool, but day in, day out, people just aren't using it every single day in the same way. And so I think that that will be a more uphill battle. And the other reality is that a lot of Microsoft's AI products are powered by OpenAI right now. And that company is a big question mark after the debacle it had earlier this year. So we're talking a lot about these dominant players, the Magnificent Seven. I want to also talk to you about the IPO market. Um, are there any, in your mind, big tech IPOs coming up next year, ones that investors should be looking at? I mean, Shein filed, and that is an e-commerce IPO that could be absolutely massive, uh, TBD on what that timing will look like. Um, but that one is really, really meaningful for some of the biggest uh, investors in tech. And then the other one, of course, that we say every year and some someday it'll come true uh, is the Stripe IPO. Uh, will that happen next year finally, given some of the, the sort of tax burdens they have, uh, the, the need to sort of make those early investors and employees whole on a timeline, it seems a little bit more likely. But I think for, for the IPO window, you get into this sort of binary of, 
is the window open? If it's closed, you're not going to see a lot of these companies go out. Um, they can wait. They have cash. They can raise cash. They can probably raise more cash easier next year with interest rates probably going down. So I think that we're going to have to wait and see if the markets are, are receptive to IPOs before you see a ton of them in big tech. Sarah Coons, always great to see you. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time and your insight. All right, we're turning now to the 2024 presidential race. We're less than one month away from the kickoff of the first primary contest of the election season with the Iowa caucus. Republican White House hopefuls looking to strike early and secure delegates needed to lock up the party's presidential nomination. And fresh polling showing former President Trump holding a commanding lead in that state compared to the other GOP hopefuls, with more than half of Republican voters in Iowa saying they would vote for the former president. Let's, for much more, let's bring in Jimmy Pethokoukas, American Enterprise Institute economic policy advisor and a CNBC contributor. Jimmy P., good morning. It is great to have you here. Ah, good morning. All right, so what should we make of that early polling for Iowa? How do you take that? How indicative of, is this of how you think the rest of the race is going to play out? Yeah, well, I think the way the rest of this race is going to play out will not depend on Iowa. I think it will depend on Iowa and New Hampshire. I think if a Republican candidate wants to break through, they need to break through in one of those two places. Iowa, as you just said, that's looking tough, so it needs to be New Hampshire. If, for instance, Nikki Haley, who seems to have some momentum, could uh, could win New Hampshire, and polls show that she's doing better and better there, and then go on to win uh, South Carolina, her home state, then you had then President uh, uh, former President Trump doesn't look imbe- unbeatable. They need to draw one of these other candidates, whether it's probably Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, needs to draw blood in one of these two contests or it's going to be a very short primary. Yeah, just to put it in perspective, that may be a bit of an uphill challenge, at least in Iowa. Uh, The Iowa caucus poll numbers, Trump with 52 percent, DeSantis with 20 percent, Haley with 16 percent. So you mentioned it looks like New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned how important New Hampshire is. I do want to kind of shift gears just a bit when we're talking about Wall Street and investors. Um, in your mind, which one of these candidates may be the most aligned with Wall Street and investor interest? You know, that's you know that's an interesting question. I think uh, for I think particularly Wall Street, you know, they're not going to like a populist presidential candidate, which inherently inside of populism is kind of an anti-bank sentiment. I think you have both Wall Street executives and executives more broadly. I think they're one if they're already leaning Republican, they're worried that. Uh, Donald Trump is the only Republican that President Biden could beat. Certainly a poll showing, for instance, Nikki Haley uh, winning by quite a large margin. I think they're worried about the Trump agenda, particularly trade and immigration. A lot of business executives don't want that. Uh, you know, it's, you know, the global economy built on free trade and a lot and, you know, you know, talent and labor being able to move around. And then I think there are some executives, whether they're leaning Republican or not, are worried about sort of the democracy stuff. They're worried about the the, you know, the, the January 6th insurrection. They're worried about what Trump has said about using, you know, the Justice Department for revenge. So all those issues, I think, make a lot of business people, Republican leaning or not, uh, pretty wary of the former president. You know, while we're talking about business people, uh, Home Depot co-founder and billionaire Ken Langone putting his support behind Nikki Haley. Do you expect to see more big money donors like a Ken Langone and, you know, other business leaders being very vocal about their support for Nikki Haley going forward? Well, I think they'll be more vocal up until the point where if uh, former President Trump wins these first two states, he's just going to look like he has unstoppable momentum. 
that these other candidates just have not dropped out. I mean, that's sort of the key. Uh, you know, somebody needs to get uh, Donald Trump one on one. That doesn't seem to be happening. And if that happens, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter how much money they put into a super PAC for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or I don't know. Then maybe then they turn to a third party candidate. There's some talk of Joe Manchin running. That could be a possibility. But if we're sitting here in you know in six weeks and Donald Trump has handily won the first you know the the, the caucus and New Hampshire primary, uh, gonna look like he's gonna be the Republican nominee. All right, a lot to watch. Uh, the Iowa caucus having a lot of meaning, but you're saying New Hampshire, that's really the one to watch. Jimmy Petakukas, thank you very much. Great to see you as always. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, fresh headwinds for Apple in China as Beijing reportedly looks to further crack down on one of the tech giant's most important products. Plus, two major Wall Street firms facing pressure of their own of their own back at home as DC gets tough over their investment practices. But first, we have a few of your top trending stories. Travis Kelsey, not just winning on the football field or with Taylor Swift this year, he's also officially the champion of game day advertising. Kansas City tight end appearing in 375 commercials during the NFL season, more than any other athlete, actor, or other household name, including Jake from State Park. Who needs Santa's sleigh when you have electric vehicles? A Scottish couple comp- completing the world's first ever drive from the North to the South Pole, spanning nine months and 1,700 miles with a Nissan EV. And speaking of Christmas, eggnog could have some competition this holiday season. A brewery and creamery in Oregon teaming up to create blue cheese beer, brewed with Rouge River blue cheese and Asian oak barrels over the course of nearly two years. Ugh. The beer's founder says the drink was met with skepticism, but is a dream come true for cheese lovers. Yeah, think about it. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet. We start with Seaport Research Partners downgrading its rating and price target on Roku, moving it to neutral and $75 per share. It says in part that the streaming platform's advertising growth has been facing some challenges from the likes of Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Shares of Roku down 2% in the pre-market. Speaking of Netflix, Morgan Stanley raising its price target on the company to $5.50 per share. It says Netflix has an improving earnings outlook and the stock offers an attractive risk-reward scenario. Taking a look at the big streamer up fractionally this morning. And JMP cutting its rating on Shopify to market perform. It says while it believes the company has tremendous momentum, it says Shopify's gross profit margins, they are facing some new headwinds. Taking a look at shares of Shopify this morning down just about 1.5%. All right, time now for your global briefing. We're going to begin with watching shares of Apple this morning, taking a look at shares of Apple down three quarters of 1% under some pressure as the list of Chinese agencies and Beijing-backed firms banning iPhone use among their staff. It just continues to grow. According to a new report, multiple state firms and government departments across at least eight Chinese provinces have instructed employees in the past two months to only carry locally branded phones into work. Shares of Chinese AI firms since time selling off in overseas trading now at an all-time low. Taking a look at those shares right now. They're down 11% right now in the pre-market, down over 10% in the last week. This following the unexpected death of its co-founder on Friday. Since time develops AI software and technologies, including AI-enabled content generation and facial recognition. The company was recently a target of a short-seller report and was also placed on a U.S. trade blacklist back in 2019, which restricted U.S. companies from doing business with SenseTime. And IBM making deals this morning, buying German-based software AG Web's methods and stream sets divisions for just over $2.3 billion. Now, according to the companies, the deal marks 
Big Blue's latest push into hybrid cloud and AI tech. The transaction is set to close in the second quarter of next year. Taking a look at shares of IBM, pretty much flat right now, but software AG shares up 1.5%. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we have the one word that every investor needs to know today. Plus, stocks looking to set the stage for a potential Santa Claus rally. The signals, our next guest says, could mean for a holly jolly final few trading days of 2023. Much more Worldwide Exchange coming up after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We have some breaking news for you this morning. Reports out a short time ago, the Japanese steelmaker Nippon Steel is buying U.S. Steel for $7 billion. Taking a look at shares of U.S. Steel right now, up almost 1.5%. Again, reports are that Japan's Nippon Steel is set to buy U.S. Steel for at least $7 billion, according to reports. We'll continue to follow this story throughout the morning. U.S. Steel shares up 1.5%. All right, time now for your WEX wrap-up. We're going to start with Illumina announcing it will divest itself from cancer blood test maker Grail after a U.S. court found its $7.1 billion deal to buy Grail anti-competitive. Illumina says it plans to shed its stake in Grail through a third-party sale or capital market deal by the middle of next year. Shares of Illumina right now up just about 3.5%. FTX filing its plan to end bankruptcy and return billions of dollars to its customers and creditors. The plan, which does not include details, about how much customers can expect to get back now heads to creditors for a vote. A House Judiciary Committee issuing a subpoena to BlackRock and State Street over documents related to ESG laws. The House calling the documents provided by both companies back in July, quote-unquote, inadequate. Southwest Airlines agreeing to pay a $140 million penalty to resolve a probe by the U.S. government over that service meltdown during the holidays last year. Part of that settlement will include $90 million going towards travel vouchers for passengers who suffered a lot of delays. Shares of Southwest right now up 1% in the pre-market. Robinhood says it received around $1.1 billion in account transfers since it began offering a 1% match to on such accounts in October. This is Robinhood looks to attract wealthier clients from bigger brokerages with more than 150 of the transfers, topping $1 million. And a sweet start for Warner Brothers Wonka, scoring $39 million during its domestic debut this weekend. The Hunger Games prequel taking second place with $6 million, and The Boy and the Heron coming in third. All right, here's what to watch. And the final full trading week of 2023. We've got earnings from FedEx, Micron, General Mills, and Nike, and a number of key reports on the economy, housing starts, existing home sales, real GDP, new home sales, durable goods, and of course on Friday, big one, PCE. We're also keeping an eye on central banks all around the world, including the latest monetary policy decisions by the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China. Ahead of that busy week, let's get one more check on how the markets are shaping up to kick off the new trading week. Taking a look at futures right now uh, in the green across the board all morning. The Dow off of its highs of earlier, but you see that S&P and the Nasdaq both in the green. Joining me now, Brian Levitt, global market strategist for North America at Invesco. Brian, good morning. It's great to have you here. Good morning. Thank you. All right, so we're coming off kind of a mixed day Friday, but in general, a rally when it comes to the markets. Give us a sense. How do you see this final full trading week of the year? What is your WEX word of the day? I think the the final trading week is going to be positive. It's a market that is increasingly enthused about a soft landing. And if we continue to get reasonably resilient economic data uh, and inflation pressure that continues to moderate, that is a, a good backdrop. So my word of the day is normalization. We are getting into a period of a more normalized policy environment after an incredibly tight one, and we're going to normalize the yield curve. And normalization of the yield curve historically has been quite good for risk assets. 
So give us a sense. Does normalization, is that sort of kind of a synonym for broadening? Because we've seen a definite broadening in the market. We've seen, you know, other parts of the market outside the Magnificent Seven that powered the market all year, up 75 percent year to date. But we've seen a lot of those other areas catch a bit. Absolutely. And it's it's very similar to the trade that you saw from the middle of October of 2022 through February when Silicon Valley Bank failed. So it was a much broader market because the the expectation was for a soft landing. Now, once the bank started to fail, and quite frankly, coincident with that was a period of hot economic data. So the concern was that the banks were under pressure and the Federal Reserve was going to have to keep raising rates. So that created a much more concentrated market. Okay. Since we've seen inflation down, more participation, as you mentioned. All right, so more participation. You're looking actually at the small caps, the Russell 2000, currently trading at about 25 times forward earnings compared to the historical average about of about 35 times forward earnings. So are you saying right now, is this an attractive entry point for the small caps? It is. And, you know, valuations are not timing tools. So valuations in small cap and value in international have been cheap for a while, but you need a catalyst. And that catalyst is coming in the form of expectations of, of Fed rate cuts. And that is the steepening of the yield curve. That steepening of the yield curve historically has been quite good for smaller cap indices. And you're also looking outside of the U.S., for example, uh, the MSCI U.S. trading right at its historical average, but the MSCI minus the U.S. at a bit of a discount? Yeah, the all-country world index is is also cheap, um, the developed and the emerging world, compared to the U.S. And Got again, it. we haven't had a catalyst for a while, but what that catalyst is emerging is the end of Fed policy okay. tightening. And typically, the end of tightening leads to a weaker dollar. Brian, great to see you as always. Thank you very much. Thank all of you for watching. We have Squawk Box coming up next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. You might not think that a few simple words could make you crave McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. But if you listen closely to the sound of me saying, McGriddles, McMuffin, you might be wrong. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.